We're in Luke chapter 22. And as I begin to look at this section of text, where we'll be is really centering in on the on the arrest of Jesus. It happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a, a kind of an Aramaic word that basically means olive press. And it's an olive orchard. I know we call it the Garden of Gethsemane. But a, a garden or a, an orchard are very similar words, even in the Greek rendering of the account here. And, and Jesus would be in this orchard where he would retreat to at night. It's a kind of a, a, a little place of respite for him because Jerusalem is a, a bustling city without a lot of green space. And so to walk out through the Kidron Valley, walk about a kilometer, get outside the, the, the outskirts of the city and be able to have a place of peace. And Jesus had no place to lay his head. It's not like he had a, a southern home in Jerusalem to complement his northern home up in Galilee. He just had a tree uh, under which he would lay. And in these, this would be in this olive grove of, of trees that would have been there. Uh, amazingly, just to kind of uh, dimensionalize this, the next time that, that some of us are taking communion will be in this garden. And we will be able to, to pray in, in the spot where Jesus prayed, to reflect on what it is that he did for us, and then to be able to take the, the communion that he instituted through his body and through his blood. I mean, really astounding that, that all of this is coming our way, and that all of this becomes realer and realer uh, the closer that we get to the gospel. So as we look here, we're going to begin reading in verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And again, he'd come out of the city, go down through a valley called the Kidron Valley, and then up a bit of a rise to this Mount of Olives. It's a, again, as they said, an orchard, and it looks directly into the east gate of Jerusalem, the very gate by which he entered the city uh, just earlier that week. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. This will be a bit of a recurring theme for Jesus at this point in time. As a matter of fact, it was as he was uh, even talking throughout the week that he had reminded them that be careful. Your hearts are going to be weighed down. This will happen. Carousing, drunkenness, the anxieties and the worries of life. And this day of temptation will close on you like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. And so be always on the watch and pray that you'll be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand, stand firm before the Son of Man. He says that at the very end of, of chapter 21. And it's interesting that the other Gospels kind of combine a bit of what he says there as well as what he says here in the garden, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Matthew has it as watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Luke extends it out with be always on the watch. Now, this word watch in the Greek is the word Gregory. It's an interesting word. It's, it's actually called for all of us, but it's given especially to those who are shepherds over God's flock. And in Acts 20, Paul, when he's trying to prepare the elders of Ephesus, he says to them, keep watch over this flock. And because of that, 
that charge to those who are shepherds over the, the flock, the, the word Gregory had been adopted by, by Catholic popes. Besides John, it's the number one name that popes take on. Why? Because it's this idea that I need to be the one who's got my eyes on the horizon rather than just looking two feet in front of me, but to live my life as one who's always on the watch of whatever danger it might be that would impose itself upon us and our, our spiritual walk in, in Christ. So it's a, you know, I think it's a rather appropriate term even to be able to appropriate of, of Gregory. Anybody here named Gregory by any chance? No, not a one. Wow. All right. Well, you know, you all over there, as you have like kids every other week, uh, might be. And as the rest of the church is like just trying to persevere under the cost of baby shower after baby shower. Uh, maybe. Maybe the, the, the next one that's a Gregory will be a great shepherd of, of our flock. <laughs> Pray that you will not fall into temptation. For 41. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel of heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, very deep term there, this is as rough a patch as one could imagine emotionally, physically. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That's anguish. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. This is emotional exhaustion. Why are you sleeping? He asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Again, the watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And here comes the temptation. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas... Are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them ends up being Peter, we know from the Gospel of John. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the and by the way, this is the last miracle that Jesus performs. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts. And you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. That just sounds ominous. Is that now is the time where darkness will be able to have domination, as Satan has always desired. Satan, who had left Jesus back in Luke chapter 4, waiting for an opportune time to be able to strike. And perhaps this is that opportune time where Satan perceives that darkness 
will finally be able to dominate. Even though with this domination of darkness, that nonetheless, light has shone through the darkness. And the darkness is not able to overcome it. My first point... Whoop, connection lost. My, my first point is stumbling in the dark. What we're going to see here, even as we read on in just a moment, is a series of unrighteous steps of stumbling by everyone all around Jesus. And what you see among the Jewish leaders is a, a hatred and disdain for the very one who fulfills all that they've studied. What you see amongst the temple guards is a, is a bullying, a slapping, a punching of, of one who's trying to assert themselves by abusing those who are most vulnerable. And even among his own disciples, rather than setting their sights on God, they lower their sights and try to take matters into their own hands. And then ultimately, the stumble by Peter. And all of this is occurring in the dark. They've retreated. This is their time of, of retreating into sleep before the, the next day, after a long dinner, after a long ordeal, and after the emotional difficulties of learning as disciples that Jesus was going to leave you. Not only leave you, but as he predicts, he will be rejected, abused, tortured, and ultimately killed. That's an emotionally exhausting moment for all of them as well. Uh, so much so that they couldn't even keep their eyes open as Jesus tried to pray for the strength to go through this whole ordeal. But here the stumbling continues, and look on with me in verse 54. Then seizing him, seizing Jesus, they led him away, and they lead him into the, uh, and took him into the house of the high priest. And this is Caiaphas' house. Peter follows at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him. That's never a good sign, right? When you're trying to like keep things on the down low and somebody keeps like looking over at you and looking over at you. Like, do you, do you really belong here? Is this really, are you really supposed to be here at this moment right now? Remember as uh, in my pre-kindergarten class at Oakhurst Country Day School, I had uh, gotten dressed up in the robe and, and everything for graduation, but I had gone to, the, um, to the, the regular school. I wasn't in the special prep school with everybody else that was there. And even though I was dressed up, I was like, whoa, I get to wear all this stuff. I didn't anticipate that. And I was so excited because, you know, my parents, my grandparents are there. And I've got a robe on, and I'm like five years old. I mean, like cap and gown type, type robe regalia. And, but, but even as like the, the, the whole ceremony is progressing, there's this one teacher who kept looking over at me. And kept looking over at me. And I remember even as a five-year-old, I remember to this day, distinctly, I was thinking, this can't be good. <laughs> like, why, why is this lady eyeballing me right now? Like, what's going on? And ultimately, they did. You know, before I was able to walk across, they pull me out of the line. They take the, they defrocked me right there. Before I know, right? They defrocked me before them all. But you just, you just know that something bad is about to go down 
as somebody starts to give you the stink eye. Like, I, I, I know it. And, and this is just a servant girl who, if you think about stations of life in the first century, Peter ought to feel, you know, a, a bit secure in, in the stations of life there. But even a servant girl can kind of give him that little bit of a look where he is crumbling inside. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he, I mean, how sad is this? He denied it. Woman, I don't know him. Talk about a stumble. Three years. Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Peter, or or Simon, you will now be called Peter, the rock. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow is with him, for he's a Galilean. You would know by his accent. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. It also says in the parallel accounts, he began to call down curses on himself. I don't even know what that could have been. May God strike me dead if I actually know this Jesus Christ. May I be eternally anathema before the Lord if I know this. I don't know what he must have said. Something along those lines would be a typical curse at the time. But whoa, that's a frightening stumble to get to that place. And Jesus even says, you will all fall away on account of me. Fall away and stumble is the same same Greek word. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed in the midst of darkness. And then, coming out of Caiaphas' house, after all of the ordeal that Jesus had faced there, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Imagine that eye lock. As you're completing your third and most vehement denial, Jesus schmeezes. I don't even know what you're talking about. May God strike me dead if I know that Galilean guy that you're talking about there. Whoop. Wow. Imagine that very moment. But for us, even in the midst of our stumbles, to not just look at this, wow, what, what, what Peter experienced. It's really what we ought to always experience. Is to know, as Proverbs 5.21 says... For your ways are in full view of the Lord. And he examines, not just knows about, he examines all your paths. Proverbs 5.21. That is our, our real life. We live constantly before the face of God. It's meant to be an encouragement, by the way. But it doesn't feel that way when we decide to go our own path of darkness. In the midst of darkness, they were like, ah, I want to hide. I want to pretend like he doesn't know. I want to just put him out of my sight. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. And so he stumbles in the dark. And in this... In this stumbling, 
There's compromise. There's betrayal. In this hour of darkness, there's denial. There's fear. And there's temptation at every turn. And Satan wants, more than anything, to be able to use the darkness to take out those who would follow Jesus. That darkness took out Judas. As Judas was wondering, what, what about this great rebellion? It doesn't look like it's going our way. He's talking about dying. He's talking about defeat. Maybe I'll cash in for the 30 pieces of silver and get while the getting is good and align myself still with the, the powers that be in, in, in the temple. Certainly they know the Bible. Certainly that must be okay. And the moment of doubt, of fear, under the cloak of darkness, and Judas goes the way of Satan. Even the disciples, in the, right after Jesus says, watch and pray so you do not fall into temptation. As the guards arrive, their first inclination is, let's do this on our own human effort. Let's not go to God at this very moment. And right after the human effort fails, what do they all do? They all turn and ran away from Jesus. The, the parallel accounts call it. Imagine being Jesus in that moment of darkness. You've now been completely apprehended. The, the guards have got you and they're about to lead you towards the ordeal about which you were just praying. And you look to your brothers and all you see are the backs of their cloaks flying in the air as they are literally running away from him. Alone. In the dark. But Peter. Peter is still going on his own steam for a little bit. Loyalty will take you very far. But it doesn't take him any farther than the courtyard. And that loyalty. that You know what? We, we, we were, we're with him, man. We, we, that's not who we are. We need to be stand by our, our, our brother here. We need to stand by our Jesus. And he gets him to the courtyard. But again. If it's just based on your own misplaced honor of self-effort, it's not going to get you very far once you get to the courtyard. Because then, even in that darkness, as there's a little bit of coals burning, and, and through that light, you become a little bit visible. Nonetheless, in that darkness, Peter crumbles. I, uh, I've had plenty of times in my Christian walk where I've allowed the darkness to really take me to a place of awful stumbling. One of the worst that I can recall was in uh, 1995. And it's interesting, it was a celebration of the perseverance of Cal Ripken. I was working for Coca-Cola and coordinating marketing efforts for, for the event and was at Camden Yards. And, and as we were marking this great Ironman accomplishment of standing firm to the end, it was going to be one of the worst stumbles that I was ever going to have as a disciple of Jesus. And I was, uh, I was single. I was smarting. I was uh, smarting in terms of exhausted from a... Uh, a, a awful uh, emotional ride that, that left me single 
at that moment. And, um, and it's interesting, in, in the very moment where we are thinking anyway that, that we've been beat down by, by, by different circumstances is a time where we can be very vulnerable to everything that comes our way in the darkness. And in, in that evening, as, as I was uh, finishing off all of the, the work for the game and, and for the, the celebration, uh, there, was a, there was a girl that started showing me all sorts of attention at a time where that's what I thought that I needed. And continued to shower all of that my way as the night in Baltimore grew darker and darker. And then finally, under the cloak of darkness, uh, as I agreed to walk her back to her car, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, ended up having, having time with her where, where I was actually kind of you know, grappling and kissing and, and really just engaged in, in darkness at her car like I, I never thought ever possible. And I had transgressed everything that Jesus stood for. All that Jesus wanted for my life, I threw out. And not once during that time did I even consider watch and pray. Raise my sights. What is it that God really wants for me at this, at this time? Even, even heading into the, the entire event, which was going to be a long night at a time where I was very hurting emotionally, did, did I even stop and think, I need to think through what temptations face me in, in this event that's coming my way. And I, and I fell. And I, I fell horribly, miserably. Even so much so that I even felt affection. I mean, so much affection even for this girl. And I, and, and I remember even thinking, you know, that later on that night after, after we departed, thinking like, I wonder if, if maybe I should pursue something more with her. Is there a possibility of doing it? And then in the, the, the depth of my darkness, even thinking, well, maybe if I pursue her, it'll somehow help her come to know the Lord. Well, I mean, imagine that foundation, born of compromise, born of, of really my defiling life. And, and amen, when, when light dawned and I, and I woke up the next day, which I didn't sleep much at all, but as, as soon as I woke up the next day, pray, praise God that, that I was able to have a, a moment of clarity and a moment of prayer, and, and real prayer, not just, you know, kind of self-indulgent, oh, poor pitiful me that I'm going through so much in my life prayer, but, but really trying to bring myself into the presence of God and to realize in, a, in an instant then what it was that needed to happen. And I, I quickly ran to the evangelist of the church at that time. And I mean, to his house, not just the phone call, but to his house. And just like, this is, this is where I've ended up. Like I never thought I could have ended up in, in, in such a place to, to actually cross Lines that I thought would never cross, and it, look at look at where I'm at, and and, and to, to to really finally uh, you know, kind of humble myself in recognizing the the depth of help that I needed, and to finally allow light to shine where there was only darkness in my life. But it is interesting what Jesus said: light has shone in darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome it. That's the opening to John's gospel. And, and even in the midst of this darkness is Jesus. Even in the midst of my darkness, the midst of your darkness, there is light waiting to shine. And that light is deliverance. The darkness is not deliverance. 
obscuring our mess is not deliverance. Peter would have not had deliverance if he just kind of swallowed what he had done and just tried to keep it to himself and think, well, I'll just kind of keep this between me and the Lord. Well, how about when the Lord finally was able to see that was the moment of light for Peter. That was the the, the shining at that very second for for Peter to be able to see. It's what is required from, from all of us. If we're to be able to get out of the clutches of the depth of the darkness that is ours. But Peter, myself, and many of us, we have an expectation of righteousness that is not Christ's. Man, it's completely different from Christ's. We have an expectation of righteousness and we, we grow accustomed to it. Uh, the, the, kind of the technical word is homeostasis. Like all organisms have a set point of comfort. So, for example, I don't know what the temperature in here is set at, but let's say it's about 70 degrees. And if, it, if, it, if that you know, is, is comfortable to you as room temperature, then you're, you're okay. But if, if not, then you have something within, inside of you that has a homeostasis where it's too cold and stuff is going to be going on inside of you more than you realize. Your, your capillaries are going to constrict. You may actually kind of you know, do, do some things to create some friction that create heat on your skin. Uh, you may be covering up, as, as, as many are doing, even as I speak right now. Uh, but why, why is all that going on? Well, because you have homeostasis where you just do stuff all the time, even unconsciously, to get back to that set point of comfort. That's the way a thermostat works, right? I mean, if you, you set the thermostat at, at 71 in your house and it, it falls too low, well then, boom, the furnace kicks in and it brings it back to homeostasis. If it gets too, too high, then the air conditioning kicks in and again, brings it back to that, that place of comfort. But here's the, the part that I think we've got to recognize. In terms of our own righteousness, we all have a set point of comfort. Peter had it. Judas had it. The disciples had it. Even the guards that will beat on Jesus in the next story all, all had it. And there's this set point where we're actually comfortable with this certain level of righteousness. But unfortunately, that level of righteousness is not biblical righteousness. It's biblical righteousness minus X. And I don't know what your X is. But X is some acceptable level of profanity, compromise, lust, sin, pollution, contamination, violation. And that we actually grow accustomed to righteousness minus X. X being that level. And even as you have discussions with one another, it's, it's you know, you say, oh, yeah, you know, I've had a you know, good week, but you know what, I, 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 I did actually look at a pornographic site. And, but you think, well, but, but at least I didn't, you know, kind of indulge physically in some other way. And, and so it may be that once every few weeks of looking at crass pornography is somehow at your set point. If it is, it's time to, to have a radical wake-up call because that's the very leverage where Satan grabs a foothold in the darkness and is able to bring us down a path of greater and greater compromise along the way. And it, and it may be that you justify it because it's been a rough run. You know, for me, it was, oh, oh my goodness, I just, I just lost my family. So, you know, yeah, you're going to have to understand 
that I would need validation and that, that I would kiss that girl. My goodness, if we ever get into that mode of, of justifying anything other than righteousness, we are playing right into the hour of darkness having domination in our lives. And it's interesting, there was a, a, a study done at Stanford University by uh, Professor Shiv, and he, he took two big groups of undergrads. And, and in taking these two groups of undergrads, he, he gave them two different tasks. And it was, it was all in a, in a lab. And, and all they had to do is, is in, in, a, in a room, remember a two-digit number or a seven-digit number. Those are, that's the difference between the two groups. And then afterwards, they were asked to walk down to a different room. As they were walking down to the different room, they were presented in the new room a, a kind of a, a, a refreshing uh, kind of place of, of um, uh, hospitality. And there they were given two choices, a fruit salad or a highly decadent chocolate cake. And they said, you're, you know, uh, you're able to have one, one or the other. Just make, make sure that you don't have both so that there's enough for everybody. And, uh, and so here's what's interesting is that there was one group that was twice as likely to have the chocolate cake. You know what group that was? The group that had to memorize a seven-digit number. Like that little bit of stress in your life. <laughs> of going from a two-digit number to a seven-digit number. And might I add that this study was done back before cell phones caused us to lose the ability to remember seven-digit numbers. That appendix has apparently fallen off of our brain, but never mind that. But just that little bit of stress made you twice as likely to fall to temptation. Amazing, right? But now here's the hopeful part of this. The study was done again and again. One time it was done with having one set of... Uh, of sample group to have a sleepless night. Study done again, guess what? The sleepless night had no effect. It still came down to whether you had a two-digit number or a seven-digit number. And the sleepless night did not have an effect. But then one other time, this study has been done many different ways, but one other time that this study was done, and in, in the next study, they were given a questionnaire that either led them to believe that they are likely to be weaker in moments of stress or a questionnaire that led them to believe that they are able to have willpower to stand firm in moments of stress. And when that happened, everything changed. No longer did the two-digit versus seven-digit number have an effect at all. As a matter of fact, even though the sleepless night wasn't able to have, have an effect, the, just the, the very simple idea that you have the ability to exercise willpower given to the control group then completely negated the stress of the situation. Which that's important for us as Christians, right? Otherwise, we're victims to any anxiety or stressor that comes into our life. But if you trust what it is that Jesus says to you, His expectation is that you will not fall into temptation. That's why 
He gives us this great charge to pray so that you will not fall into temptation. That righteousness can really be the path of your life. And, as I mentioned, this light did shine in the dark. In the midst of all darkness in this passage, there's one moment of light. And it's an odd one. And it's where Jesus fights in prayer. For us, because he's about to take on our mess, all of our defilement and contamination and pollution. And he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Now, this is an odd thing that Jesus would pray. And I don't hear it in any of the prayers when I read through one of the famous historical books, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Blandina, Perpetua, Felicitas, Polycarp, Ignatius, Stephen in Acts chapter uh, 7. None of them do I hear this kind of wrestling before their martyrdom. Stephen, as, as he's being stoned, says, Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. And one last thing, don't hold this against these guys. All right, let's do this thing. Bring on the stones. Even the, 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 the young girl, Perpetua, 22 years old, Felicitas, her younger servant, they both have recently given birth. They've got babies. And Perpetua writes a journal. And in her journal, the only anguish she has is about her child, who's able to visit her one last time to, to be able to be nursed as, as young as that child is. And they were trapped in nets, like in the midst of an arena, as wild beasts came and tear, tore at them for the amusement of a crowd and to celebrate an emperor's son's birthday. They bring out these, these Christian martyrs in 203 AD. And after Perpetua was pierced in the ribs, Eusebius, one of the main church historians, writes that even as as she lay dying and, and really suffering, a young gladiator comes over her trying to give himself the will to run her through with the sword. But as a young gladiator, he's not able to do it. And so she takes, this is, this is a quote from Eusebius, she then took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and guided it to her throat. There's no take this cup from me. This is a bring it on. Ignatius wrote a letter to the Romans. And in that letter, as he's on his way to his martyrdom, he writes, this is in the second century, even earlier. Allow me to become food for the wild beasts through whose instrumentality, through these beasts, it will be granted me to attain to the Lord. That I could be a little bit like Jesus. That's his prayer. Not take this cup from me. Polycarp. Bishop of Smyrna, 86 years old, old man, brought into the, the, the arena. For 86 years I've served Jesus, he says, and he's never wronged me in any way. How then can I possibly curse my very king and savior when the governor says to him, curse Jesus and I'll set you free. And this is what he says. The governor keeps asking him questions. Polycarp says to him, hey, since you keep pretending that you don't know what I am, let me simplify your task. I declared you without shame. I'm a Christian. And if you'd like to learn what Christians believe, set a time 
and I will tell you. And then the governor realizes this guy's getting the best of him. And he says to him, you know, I've got wild beasts at my disposal. Repent. And he means repent from this Christianity. Repent, and I will set you free. Polycarp says, well then, unleash the beasts. Whoever heard of repenting from what is good in order to follow what is evil? Then the governor says, you know what? I got fire that will burn you alive. Polycarp says, you threaten me with a mere fire that burns for an hour and then goes out. Haven't you heard of the fire of coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly? Why do you keep delaying? Do whatever you want with me. And so he orders, the crowd goes crazy. They go and get sticks from everywhere to begin the fire. And then as the guards get ready to secure him to the, to the post, he says to them, leave me as I am. These are his final words. The one who gives me the strength to endure the fire will also enable me to remain motionless without having to be secured. This is the pattern that we see of Jesus' followers. Why is it that Jesus prays, oh, take this cup from me? Was he afraid of the physical punishment? No. He knew what, pun what pain would be caused by the median nerve when it's severed. He created the median nerve. He knew what would happen as the occipital and trigeminal nerves are irritated through the crown of thorns. He created that. He knew the emotional pain. He created all of that. But there's one thing that he could not know, and it's often the unknown that's so difficult. One thing that would cause him such anguish of the soul, praying as though drops of blood were angels having to come and minister to him. What is this thing that Jesus is having to wrestle with so that he can really be our lamb? Well, brace yourself. My sin. He had calibrated his righteousness at righteousness. At holiness. At purity. He'd never known what it was to be defiled, polluted, contaminated by the, the stank of sin. He never knew that. Sure, for us, we think, ah, what's, what, what's another sin? I've, I've done that before. But Jesus doesn't have that experience. It's like when you get new sneakers, right? And I mean... If you've had them a while and it's muddy outside, you don't think about it. But if you just got them, you're like, uh, mom, can you carry me? <laughs> right? And if anything gets on them, you're like, come on, we got to get home. We got to get home. I think it's drying. I, I got to get home. You just scrub it clean. Right? I mean, is, is that sensitivity to any stain when something is pure. We, unfortunately, have somehow, in calibrating our righteousness, have lowered our sights. But Jesus didn't. And because he didn't, he has to wrestle with the fact that he's going to get your pride. He's going to get your lust. He's going to get your uh, cowardice. He's going to get your denial of him. He's going to get your indulgence, your greed, your faithlessness, your, your humanism, your self-reliance. All of that, that makes the devil the devil, the pride, the defensiveness when anybody wants to try to help us in godliness. All of that, that awful, satanic 
features, they're all going to stain him. Oh my goodness. I mean, imagine, imagine having to, to take all of that on. That's how much he hates our sin. That he has to have this kind of hour after hour after hour, three times of prayer, ministered by angels, drops, sweat like drops of blood. Why? Because that's how much he hates my sin. But it's also how much he loves you. That he does fight. How deeply he loves you. Now, ultimately, he does take on all our flesh and all of our sinfulness. He is separated from the Lord in the process. All of the horrors of the suffering of his soul, as Isaiah 53 talks about, all is brought upon him. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, what do you have? If you've really repented and been reconciled to Jesus, you have the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Jesus. We need to recalibrate our righteousness. And to not be okay with the sneaker that's already dirty getting another blotch on it. But to think, oh my goodness, I have been made new by Jesus. This light that shines in the darkness has not been overcome. It persevered. It triumphed over the darkness. And in doing so, provided pure righteousness for me. To live in the light where we confess our sins to one another. And this blood of Christ continually washes us from all sin and brings us back to righteousness. There are too many of us right now that have gotten comfortable in the dark. Too many of us that have gotten comfortable with righteousness minus X. Now, I'm not talking about perfectionism and a, we, we, oh my goodness if, if we even make one misstep. No, I'm talking about appreciating that our righteousness is Jesus's. I walk around with his holiness. What a gift that I have that this is my state. I got brand new sneakers on my soul. Why, why would I in any way be comfortable or even want to go near Anything that would contaminate this preciousness that has been given to me, credited to me by this death, by this ordeal that Jesus goes through. And if we're to look at this scene and see all the darkness and all the compromise that goes on in the midst of it all is this brilliant beam of light, this brilliant beam of light for all of us to recognize that this is the promise that has been imparted to us. We have the righteousness of Christ because he persevered. And as a final charge from this, to let this count for something, is that every day, every day this week, pray. Watch and pray. And in doing so, recalibrate the righteousness that is yours in Christ. It is yours in Christ. And if you really do do that, it will affect the way everything happens in your life. The, the joy that you have in serving. The selflessness that you have in considering others. The giving that you have. The purity that you have. All of that is a natural outflow of realizing, yes, I have this righteousness of Jesus Christ. Every day this week, let's get after this. To not let this gift fall to the ground, but be appropriated for all that it's really meant to be. Thank you.